Charles, let's welcome up Pastor Charles as he comes up to speak. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate it, as always. Great worship. Uh, please excuse us this morning. We are having technical difficulties. The system is down. And it's having, you know, usually it gets back on in a short amount of time. We can figure it out. But this time it's just really messed up. So, well, that happens even with major national networks, right? I remember, like, sometimes I'm like, you're watching football and it just all goes down, right? So it happens. Um, now we rely heavily on slides, right? For visuals, for scriptures, for pictures and images to communicate what we are trying to communicate. So without the visual, you're going to lose some of the communication today. But, you know, just try to follow along, okay? I'll try to like maybe like, you know, <laughs> envision, <laughs> try to make it more visual for you with descriptions. We will see. Okay, so we start today with a, a new sermon series. Yay, exciting. We start a new sermon series called The Good Life. The Good Life. Sounds good, right? Everybody wants good life. It's inspired by a book that was written by two Harvard psychologists who are in charge of what is called Harvard longitudinal study. I don't know if any of you have heard of this study. It's the most comprehensive study of its kind. They have followed almost 1,000 people for 85 years, collecting all kinds of detail. These people have signed up from 85 years ago. That's like 1930s something, right? And these people have volunteered to like give all kinds of data like regularly, like every month, like every three months, like they would get interviewed for hours and hours and hours about how their life is going, what's happening in their life, you know, if they get fired or hired, promoted, kind of lost their job, moved, just everything got followed. Costs a lot of money, right? Eight, three generations now. And so they have incredible amount of data on what makes people happy and healthy. Those are the two questions they pursued through this study, trying to correlate what leads to happiness, what leads to healthy life. Interesting, right? Now, what they mean by happiness is not just having a pleasant, good time in life. They make a, a great point in differentiating between, and this is where slides would have been very helpful, but I'm going to try to go at it. Eudaimonia, it's a Greek word. It's a big concept in Greek philosophy. There's a difference between eudaimonia and hedonia. Eudaimonia is happiness as fulfillment. Hedonia is happiness as pleasure. So they make a big difference between lasting, fulfilling, satisfying contentment in life through the ups and downs of life. Is your life worth it to you? Is it valuable? It doesn't matter if you're having a bad time or a good time. Your life is solid, eudaimonia, versus hedonia, which is all about pleasure. So 
For Aristotle, this was a big concept. This is from Encyclopedia Britannica. For Aristotle, eudaimonia is the highest human good, the only human good that is desirable for its own sake as an end in itself, rather than for the sake of something else as a means towards some other end. You see the difference? So this was very important to people like Aristotle, these big Greek philosophers. Eudaimonia is everything that a human being should strive for. So it's something to think about. It's interesting. Lasting fulfillment. Who doesn't want it? So the big question is, how do you get that? And the big conclusion from the study is, happiness is love. Eudaimonia is love. Full stop. That's the quote from this study. It's not anything else, not money, success, doesn't matter. It's your relationships. Any meaningful relationships, right? It's relationship with your parents, siblings, children, coworkers, colleagues, friends. Warm relationships are key. Those at 50 who reported warm relations were the healthiest and happiest at their 80s. Every longitudinal study confirms this. Even pain levels are lower. And the thing is, the Bible agrees. Jesus gave a powerful and controversial teaching in what is known as parable of the shrewd manager. Um, if you have a program, it's probably printed in there. But you can follow along. I will read. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a rich master who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his master's money. So the master called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get me your accounting reports in order because you are going to be fired. Bad news. The manager thought to himself, Now what? My master has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. What do I do? I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his master to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. I don't know how much that costs, maybe a million dollars, whatever. So the manager told him, take the bill, let's change it to 400 gallons. Let's make it half a million dollars. Sounds good? So he's like, okay, sounds good. Made half a million dollars. So he called in another person, how much do you owe my, ma my master? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. On and on and on and on, right? The rich man, when he found out, the rich man praised the dishonest manager for being so shrewd. 
And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are unfaithful in little things, you won't be faithful with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and enslave to money. The Pharisees who loved their money heard all this and scoffed at him. Then he said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Very controversial, interesting passage. Because Jesus appears to extol this dishonest manager, right? So it's Jesus, you know, praising, cheating, scamming, fraudulent activities, right? And that's why the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders at the time, heard all this and scoffed at him from the passage, right? But Jesus should not be scoffed at easily, at least. There is deep wisdom here. So I like to dig in. Okay, let's begin. Jesus begins saying, there was a rich master who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came in, but the manager was wasting his master's money, not a very good manager. So the master called him in and said, hey, what's going on? Get me your accounting reports in order because you are going to be fired. So the situation is, right, you have a financial manager for a rich lord. You know, that was common back then, right? Even now we have rich people have financial advisors. Have you heard recently that Usain Bolt, uh, he got swindled and lost $16 million by his financial advisors? Anybody hear that, right? It was pretty big news. Nobody heard it? Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, he, Usain Bolt, he's a pretty f fast guy. <laughs> Was not very good at managing his money, so he had like, you know, financial ma advisors. But you got to watch out for these financial advisors, right? They can just easily swindle you. On the other hand, if you can get to a point where you need financial managers, good for you, right? You made it. It's a good thing. Anyway. So what does the financial manager do when he was told, when he realizes, I'm getting fired? So the manager thought to himself, what now? My master has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. He's making a careful assessment of his strengths and weaknesses, his assets, what he's got, what he doesn't have, right? He makes an inventory of what he could do. And then he comes to a conclusion and a plan. He says, I know what to do so that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I get fired. So he goes on this scheme. He invited each person who owed money to his master, right? And he still has the accounting reports, the books, right? And he cooks the books. 
right? He brings all the debtors in one by one by one and says, look, I got this. I have control over the records of who owes what to my master. I don't have it for long. Getting fired, he told me to hand it over, right? But I have it for now. So, you know, let's just change it. You know, a million dollars becomes half a million, you know. Whatever, you just go on and on and on. So, like, all these people now owe him big time, right? The strangest part of this teaching is where the punch comes in. Is when the rich master finds out, instead of, like, blowing the lid... I mean, what would you do if you found out something like that happened to you? You'd be like, I'm sending him to jail. I got to get that money back. You would be very angry, right? But here, the rich man praises the dishonest manager for being so shrewd. That's what the passage says. He praises the dishonest manager for being so shrewd. What a strange reaction, right? Very strange, very abnormal. Now, when you find strange reactions, strange teachings in the Bible, you know, don't just pass them by because that's where the punchline is. That's where if you dig in, some good wisdom can be found that goes beyond what we assume or what we normally think. These are opportunities to reset the ways that we think usually, the ways that we are blinded by the light by which we see, by the culture and the times we live in. So this is one such instance. The key to understanding this passage is that the dishonest manager is not being praised for being dishonest, right? He's being praised for being shrewd. So why is he so shrewd? What is so shrewd about this particular scam, right? What was he clever about? The essence of his cleverness is in that he turned a temporary control over the accounting books, right? Temporary control, a temporary asset a short-term asset into a permanent asset, right? That's essentially what he did, right? He had the accounting books for a short amount of time, very short, temporary control, temporary asset, and he turned it into something that can last him after he gets fired for a very long time, a permanent asset in the form of all these debtors who now owe him, right? Wouldn't you agree? Temporary control got turned into a permanent asset. That's essentially what he did. And the relevance of this teaching lies in the fact that we are all in the position of this manager who's just been given notice that he's going to get fired. Not right away. There's a little bit of time but you're going to get fired. You know why? Because you are all going to die. Right? Sorry to be a downer this morning, 
And I'm really sorry if this comes as news to you. Right? You know, there are only two things certain in life, right? Death and taxes. It's coming. Sorry. You know, we don't like to think about it unless we have to. But we will pass on. That day, nobody knows when. But it's coming. You've been served notice. And when you die and pass on, you know, you don't take it with you. Right? Everything you have, every asset, all the money, reputation, status, smarts, educational achievements, whatever you have, you got to cough it up. It, it all goes back to God. You're not going to take it with you. It's all going back. God is the true owner of all we have, and we are only temporary managers while we are alive. So that's why Jesus says in this passage, he advises us to turn those temporary control, temporary assets into more permanent assets. So the conclusion of the passage, he tells us, here's the lesson. He even says, here's the lesson. <laughs> this is the point I want you to understand, he says. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit people and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, meaning when you die, they will welcome you to an eternal home. He's saying there will be eternal treasures or like your home in eternity. Permanent assets will be there for you. And that's being shrewd. That's taking account of your situation correctly. And that's being smart, which is kind of strange or not how we usually think. We usually think being shrewd in this world is going after power, money, success, because climbing the ladder is where it's at, right? That's what makes life meaningful and worthy. That's how we usually think. We think being generous or giving money to people or church or other good causes, that's being righteous. That's doing the right thing. People thank you. It's a good thing you did. They don't say, oh, it's a smart thing you did that you paid for lunch. Right? No, they say, oh, thank you. That was a nice thing you did. That was a generous thing you did. That was being righteous. So churches will come and say, this is the good thing you should do. And they will guilt you into paying or giving money to church. Right? Because, you know, you got to Jesus died for you. What have you done for Jesus lately? Right? That's what churches will say. They, won't, they will not say this is the shrewd thing to do. Right? So here Jesus is saying, no, that's not how you should think. This is the true thing to do. It's not going off on morality. It's going off on what's the smart thing to do. Now, I talked about this last Sunday, but the primary meaning generator in a human mind uses some kind of hierarchy of worth 
to generate meaning and worth, like beauty, wealth, you know, success. And we rank each other and ourselves according to some hierarchy we have that depends on the culture and the times, you know, that we live in. And we put everyone in a ladder, including yourself. And you try to go up, and you see people that are higher than you, you try to emulate them. This is how human world usually works. And this is one reason why people end up getting enslaved to money, that it is meaningful in that way, in climbing the ladder. So this is where like slides would have been very helpful because I like illustrate these things. For example, I was gonna show you picture of a watch. This watch cost $5.5 million, right? This watch costs $5.5 million. It's a Patek Philippe watch. Have you heard of that brand? $5.5 million. You could buy a nice house even in New York with that money, right? <laughs> Just a watch. And, I mean, you can, I, I wish I could have shown you, functionally, it's no different than any other watch. You know, it doesn't have like a button that says, oh, it reverses time flow. You know, it makes you live longer. Oh, no, all it does is tell time. And seriously, these days, $10 digital watch is incredibly accurate, right? Down to like 10th decimal, right? So it doesn't do anything better functionally speaking. It just tells time. Why is it worth $5.5 million? Why would someone buy that for that amount of money? Well, it does do one thing. It communicates your superiority, right? It communicates that I am so rich that I can just wear a $5 million watch on my wrist. Can't, you know, it's like it's nothing, you know, you're just walking around with it. It says to everyone, you made it. You are superior human being. It communicates your worth, right? And that is powerful enough, compulsive enough that people would do this. It's worth a lot to human beings. And that's one reason why people get enslaved to money. And this is where the passage talks about how the Pharisees, the religious and society leaders at the time, loved their money and heard all this and scoffed at him. That's what the passage says. These religious and society leaders, they loved to display their superiority. They prayed ostentatiously in public. They went on and on and on about what is the righteous thing to do and the good thing to do. They, in this passage, it, Jesus points out, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. So there are two attributes from this passage attributed to the Pharisees. They are enslaved to money. They love their money. 
and they love showing off how righteous they are. They are connected. They come from the same source. They serve the same purpose. It shows you're superior. They love to display their worth, right? They're worthy with their success and their money and also with how righteous and right they are. And today's society works on exactly the same (laughs) dynamic, same axis. It just changes over time slightly what criteria you use, but the human society has always operated around this thing about who's better and who's worse, who's worth more and who's worth less. That was of prime importance to human beings. This is what the world honors, how the world operates through public displays of being right and being successful or any other way. That can come through the language you, you use, that comes from things you watch. You could, you could communicate that in any myriad of number of ways, right? You, you know this. It should speak to you as something that is all around you. You see this. We prove our worth both in secular and church settings through these markers of being in the right camp. But he says that it is detestable in God's eyes because the cross flattens all hierarchy. The cross flattens all hierarchies of worth because he says you are all worth the life of God incarnate. And that is infinite. You can't add or subtract from infinity. Not even with $5 million watches. (laughs) Doesn't doesn't do anything for your worth. Your worth as a human being is established in the fact that you are a human being made in the image of God. It was worth enough for God to decide you are worth the life of God incarnate. That is the essence of Christian message. And this is why it is detestable in God's eyes that people are just running around (laughs) trying to signal how much more worthy you are from other people. You get that, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I want to make this very clear. It is perfectly, perfectly fine to pursue success and money. Go for it, guys. Be rich and successful as you can be. God bless you. Hallelujah, right? You know, because having money, it's convenient. It'll make your life easier, right? And you can do lots of good things with it. And so having money by itself is not a problem at all. Bible is chock full of instances where God blesses people with money. The problem comes in when even many, many churches talk about how success and money is the sign of your worth, sign that God has blessed you, that you are in the right place. That's your BS. Jesus was poor. He had nowhere to lay his head, he says. (laughs) He's so poor. Was Jesus worthy? 
We are all followers of Jesus, right? Doesn't make you any more worthy, but it's nice to have, right? So don't overspend to make yourself feel better. That's chasing after status that won't really help you. It'll only enslave you into the worldly system. A good rule of thumb is for most people, practically speaking, spend only 80% of what you make. Give away 10% and save 10% for your retirement so you don't have to rely on others. Make sense? That's a good rule of thumb for most people. By the way, I am offering a financial workshop next Sunday. <laughs> okay? After church, right upstairs, you know, just come because I've noticed that a lot of people could use, even people you would think would know better, they could use some tips on how to manage money. I have a PhD in economics from MIT. I have done in the finance world for like three decades, so I know quite a bit about how to manage money. Okay, so just some simple tips will help you a lot. And so come up, and we'll even give you free lunch, <laughs> which is really ironic because one of the uh, big lessons from the financial workshop, this is a preview, is there is no free lunch. <laughs> That'll be one of the subtitles of a section. But here we are, we are going to give you free lunch. And there's really no conditions attached because that's what we do. So check it out next week. Anyway, getting back to the topic, what Jesus teaches is confirmed by secular wisdom, by Harvard psychologists, like I talked about, good life. They say, hey, the, the wisest thing you can do in life is to invest in relationships if you want to live happy and healthy life. So when Jesus and Harvard psychologists, when they agree, that's when you should sit up and say, wow, that must be a good idea, right? So let me give you some practical suggestions. The first suggestion is spend time and attention on your relationships. Don't take your relations for granted, especially your family relationships. We, we have a tendency to like assume that you know, friendships or family, it should be easy. You know, If it's a good relationship, these things should just happen. That's not true. As with anything, if you don't pay intentional, strategic effort and time into these things, they will wither. Okay? So spend time and resource into these things. The book says that the most precious asset we have is time and attention. Uh, to illustrate this, it asks you to imagine a certain resource. And everything you do takes this resource. Even sleeping costs you this resource. And the trick is, you don't know when it will run out. Everyone has a bank account of this resource. You just don't know. This resource, the book says, is time. It will run out, just like Jesus taught in this passage. Everything you do costs this. Every minute you spend is a minute that will never come back. It's the most important resource you have. And when it's gone, it's game over. 
you cannot do anything anymore. It's done. So how will you spend this resource? Put some thought into it. Don't just drift along and just waste time. Think about what's important to you. Spend some time thinking about how to foster those things. To go with that suggestion, try using what the book calls wiser model. And it's w.i.s.er. We need slides for these things. <laughs> Sorry. So it just stands for like, it's a model that stands for five steps you should take in relationships. First thing it says is watch. Watch. Observe. Because the biggest obstacle to good relationship is that we jump to conclusions too quickly. Especially smart people, we jump to conclusions too quickly. We make assumptions. Especially when we get bothered. When someone bothers us, something bothers us, we, we have an emotional re reaction and we make assumptions. It says take a step back. Ask lots and lots and lots of questions. Instead of thinking you understood what they were saying or doing, use techniques like reflective listening, like I hear you saying X, Y, and Z. Is that right? Don't assume emotions get in the way. So observe your reactions, observe the other person, spend time watching. Before you come to any conclusions about what has happened, you gotta spend a lot more time observing. Just do one more step. Make sure you understood, right? Second step is, is I, interpret what you have observed. We have to draw meaning from what we have observed. Ob observed. Um, in this step, ask questions like, why is this so important to me? Um, is this about me or something else? What's really going on? Try to get a deeper understanding of why things are happening this way. Um, says, don't make a mountain out of a molehill, but don't make a molehill out of a mountain either. <laughs> Right? You have to come to a good interpretation, and it takes a lot of thinking. So I. And then S is select. Once you have a good feeling that you have spent enough time observing, you have spent enough time interpreting, then think about what are the options that you have in terms of your reaction. Select. Don't just go with anything that comes to you as a reaction. I mean, it may feel emotionally satisfying to just react, lash out, just go with whatever comes to your head. But he says, no, take a step back, you know? Take a walk. <laughs> Try to select. Think about what is the objective you want out of this. Like, do you want a, a, a good relationship? Or do you want to be right, for example. You know, you could get into an argument, for example, with your spouse or your children or your parents, and you could argue and argue and argue about how you are right and they are wrong. Sounds familiar? So, instead, but we just automatically think that that's the way we should engage, but take a step back and think, is that the objective, to be right? 
Like for, for those of you who are married, when you got married, what was your vow? Was your vow, in my marriage, I will make sure I am right <laughs> in my relationship with you. That's my highest priority. I will prove to everyone in the world you are wrong and I am right. That's my objective. Was that your vow? Nobody makes a vow like that, right? No, your objective is to build a warm relationship, right? So, tailor your action based on your objective rather than just going with your actions and ending up with an objective end that you probably didn't want. Sounds wise? That's why it's called wiser model, right? And E is then engage. Once you have selected, then engage your actions. And at this point, the book tries to encourage you by saying, no plan survives contact with reality, <laughs> right? So you may have an idea of how things will go once you selected a plan, but it will not go that way. So don't be too hard on yourself. Just, you tried. That's what's important. The book says it's more important to try to understand than even understand. It comes across to other people. If you really put in a genuine attempt to understand, even if you get it wrong, most people will see that you are trying, and that's important for warm relationships. And this comes from 85 years of studying people, right? So it's great wisdom. Finally, reflect on what happened. Try to draw lessons for next time. Now, I grant you, this sounds like a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work for relationships. And we think good friendships, good friend relationship, it should just automatically be there. It shouldn't take this amount of work wrong. It does. We spend so much time thinking strategically about how to be promoted, how to succeed in this world. Well, spend just even a fraction of time of that on relationships. That's what's important. Um, there are more good suggestions, many suggestions the book has, but I've talked for quite a while. So if you want more tips, go buy the book, right? Or just Google <laughs> stuff like this. And usually you get an article with lots and lots of tips. And just give it a try and see how your life goes. Jesus said, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to eternal home. This is the lesson. Invest in people. You know, be generous. Invest in yourself. People are the most important things on earth. This short time we have here, it's not very long. Let's be wise, strategic, shrewd. Let's not try to climb the ladder so much, but really recognize the deep inner worth that you have and everyone else has. God has declared you all 
infinitely worthy. Let's live with that mindset. And you will be freer and happier. In Jesus' name, let me pray for us. God, um, help us, God, to realize the situation we are in. Help us, O oh God, to not forget that the time here is not that long. It's precious every minute. Help us to be wise about how we spend this time. Help us to invest in things that last in ourselves and in this world. Help us to be salt and light in this world. Help us to be loving people. That's being shrewd. Transform our minds, O oh God, in the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.